Well, good morning, South Winds. So good to see you. Uh, so glad you're here. I am glad to be back. I want to welcome you today to uh, another week of Summer Songs, our summer long exploration uh, of the book of Psalms. And uh, I want to invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to Psalm 104. We're going to be studying this psalm together today. You know, there's a song that we don't sing at this time of year, but we will be singing in just a few months that says that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. But I wanna say today that my vote for the best season is summer, hands down. To me, summer has always been about the very best things in life. And it started when I was a kid because summer meant no school, right? I mean, summer vacation meant that that I could climb trees and collect rocks and I could go swimming and play baseball and read books all day, do whatever I wanted to do. When I got older, we lived in Southern California and summer meant the beach. And, and I've always loved the ocean. Some of my best memories are about you know body surfing and throwing Frisbees and walking along the shores of Newport Beach, Huntington Beach and Corona Del Mar. And then uh, before we moved to Tracy, which is actually over 18 years ago, some of you know that we lived for more than 13 years in a Chicago suburb. While I was there, I learned an intense dislike for winter. In fact, I, I have a theological explanation for the weather in Chicago. You wanna hear it? A long time ago, someone did something very, very bad. That's why the weather's like it is. And, and living in, in northern Illinois taught me, I think, to love summer even more. You know, when, when winter's icy grip is finally broken in the Midwest, summer can almost seem like, like heaven. And, and if you've lived in the Midwest, you understand what I'm about to say, but people there experience summer differently than people do in California. There's this intensity to it, it, intensity to having summer because they know you have to enjoy it and enjoy it now because it's short, it's about to end. Winter is coming. And, and so you cook out like crazy, you camp and you fish and swim and you play softball, you just hang out on your patio, you just get outside before the dark and the cold and the evil come back. Now, I do understand that some of you may not think like this. Not everyone likes summer. Some of you just think of heat. And besides, in California, you know, our winters really aren't very bad. But I think you would agree with me that whenever you, whatever you think about summer, uh, summer is a time where we can touch and see and smell and, and taste God's creation in a way that we really don't uh, any other time of the year. Over the last few years, I, I've been thinking more about God's creation. I've been focusing more on what the Bible says about it, what, what God thinks about creation, and therefore how we should think about creation. And that's where Psalm 104 comes in. Psalm 104 is all about God and his creation. It's God's creation song. In Psalm 104, we see how much God takes pleasure in his incredible creation. And we're also gonna see in Psalm 104 how God's creation calls us to rejoice as well. And here's the reason I want us to talk about this today. I really do believe that many of us are spiritually impoverished. Many of us haven't grown spiritually like we should in part because we have neglected God's creation. See, God's creation is one of the central ways that God wants to reveal himself and God wants to strengthen us and God wants to encourage us. And all too often in this 21st century life that we live, our fast-paced, suburban, tech-centered world, we seal ourselves off from God's creation and we miss out. We purell ourselves off in our sanitized air-conditioned spaces, safely sitting in, in front of our screens, and we suffer spiritually. We miss out. 
And I want you to know today, maybe you've never thought about this before, but God wants to reveal himself to you through his creation. God wants to bless you through his creation. God wants to minister to you through his creation. Now, I've learned a great deal about this subject and about this passage from a pastor and author named John Piper, and he has written an incredible book, one of my favorite books. It's called The Pleasure of God, The Pleasures of God. It's been out for about 30 years now, and I'm indebted to his writing for some of the insights in this message, and I would recommend this book to you. So where I wanna kind of start with this is just by asking the question, as Christ followers, I think we would agree that we should want the mind of God about everything, right? Well, that means we need to have the mind of God about his creation. And that leads to the question, what does God think about his creation? Do you know? The Bible is actually very full of God's opinions about the work of his hand. And the answer to that question is loud and clear in the Bible. God loves his creation. God takes pleasure in all that his hands have made. Well, how do we know this? Well, we know this because we find it starting on the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God describes not only his creation as he gives us his word, he describes for us what he thinks about his creation. And in the first chapter of Genesis, we see five different times that God creates, and then he, in essence, steps back and takes stock of his creation. Every time, he says the same thing. This is what the text tells us. You know these words. And God saw that it was what? Good. That's what God says. And then God completes creation. He he creates man and woman, created in his own image. And then in verse 31, it says this. God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Very good. So God delights with his, in his work. When he looks at what his hands have made, it gives him pleasure, it gives him joy. And that's what we're going to see in some beautiful ways in Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a song written to express the joy that God has in his creation. And one of the interesting things about it, you can kind of go back and look at this for yourself, is that the psalm is structured, it kind of follows in its basic outline the order of creation in Genesis 1. I'm not gonna be getting into that in this message, but you can go check that out for yourself and see how that is being expressed. And the key verse Uh, The key verse is Psalm 104, verse 31. And this is what it says. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. God rejoices in his works. So let's rejoice with him. I want you to listen right now uh, with your Bible open or if you don't have one that you can look at, you can follow along on the screen. We're gonna read this Psalm uh, and hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. 
There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, amen. Well, you know from just listening to it, this is an incredible psalm, isn't it? It's just this unbelievable kaleidoscope of creation, winds and fire and oceans and mountains and wild donkeys and grass and wine and cedars and storks and hyrax. That's a badger if you didn't know. And God, he made them all. And God, he he takes care of them all. And God, he looks at this whole beautiful thing and the psalm tells us he rejoices. God takes pleasure in his creation. And when you think about this, you have to ask the question, why? That's the question we're gonna ask today. Why does God take pleasure in his creation? And what I wanna try to do today is is, is seek to answer that question. I'm gonna do it in four statements that are based on this psalm as well as some other parts of of God's word. And, And these four answers, these four reasons about why God delights in his creation, they're not really separate reasons. They're, they're kind of overlapping reasons, but they each express kind of a facet, I think, of the, the same basic reason. And so we're going to begin with that basic reason. We're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time with the first reason. And we see this reason in Psalm 104's opening verses. You can write this down if you're taking notes on the app. Here's the first reason. God's creation displays his glorious power. See, God takes pleasure in his creation because creation displays who God is in all of his glory, in all of his power. Creation's design and order and beauty tell anyone who will honestly look and listen that the one who made it all is glorious and powerful. And he is glorious and powerful beyond anything that any of us can ever imagine. Just think about what these first verses show us. The opening line says, praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. So how does God do that? How does he clothe himself with splendor and majesty? Verse two says that that. He clothes himself with light. Light is like God's garment. And then it says the heavens are just like God's tent. I mean, the heavens. Verse three says it's like he builds the chambers of his palace on the waters of the sky. The clouds are like God's chariot. Verse four tells us that this on this earth, the wind and the fire, God's messengers, God's servants, 
So what the psalmist is saying with all this beautiful poetic imagery is that when we look at the world God has made, when we look at light and sky and clouds and and wind and fire, we should feel the weight of God's glorious power. We should see God's glory in creation. We should see God's power. The author John Stott says these verses teach us this. God is the creator of the universe and he has revealed himself in it. In his essential being, he is invisible, but he makes himself known in the visible order which he has made. God shows who he is in his creation. And the first thing he shows us is his his glorious power. In Psalm 19, the first two verses of that psalm, this is made extremely clear. Many of you know these verses. They go like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. You put this together and what you begin to see is the Bible telling us that there is one main message that creation has to communicate to us as humans. And that message is the glory of God. See, every time we look at creation, every time we look at creation, the message we should should see and hear and taste and smell is this, only a great God of power and glory and beauty and love could create all this. And we should think in our hearts, if he created everything, that includes me. And that means I owe him my existence. And that means I belong to him. Therefore, I should put my hope and my trust in him. Therefore, I should live for him, this beautiful and generous and good God who made all these good things that I can see. Psalm 19 says we hear and see this message all the time, day and night. During the day, we see it through the beauty of the burning sun and the blue skies and and the, the brilliant colors all around us. And then at night, we see and we hear that knowledge through galaxies and through stars and through the beautiful summer moons and through cool breezes and northern lights. And both day and night are saying the same thing. God is glorious. God is glorious. Maybe some of you right now are thinking, you know, Pastor Mike, it kind of sounds like you're going a little new age on us. I mean, what do you want me to do? Hug a tree? (laughs) I don't know. I think we should just praise Jesus. Maybe you're thinking that. But here's the thing. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus and God are in this whole creation thing together. Let me give you a couple of verses. There's a lot more than just this, but 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. They're together in creation. Colossians 1, 16 says, for by him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And then opening verses of John's gospel, such familiar words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I just wanna ask you, does rejoicing in creation feel unspiritual to you? Does it seem a little pagan, maybe sort of new age? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. There is no use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant for man to be purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. Anybody want to say amen to that one? 
God likes matter. God invented it, Lewis says. I, I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. God delights in his creation. Because creation shows who God is and what creation shows us is that God is glorious and God is powerful. God is clothed with splendor and majesty. There's another passage that talks about this. It's in Isaiah, very familiar passage, Isaiah 40. This is verse 26. And, and, and Isaiah, I imagine when he wrote these words was looking up at a star-filled sky perhaps on a, a dark, dark night, like I remember in southern New Mexico out in the desert almost 40 years ago. Probably will never forget it. My dad and I were, were driving back uh, across the country and we were trying to make it home, driving overnight, and we get into southern New Mexico and it's around 10.30 at night, I think, and we're getting tired. We wanna kinda you know, wake ourselves up before we continue on the way. And so we pull into this rest stop and we get out of the car and it's the middle of the night and there's nothing around you know, at all. And I remember looking up at the sky and what I saw was like literally a sheet of light so many stars that it was almost like they touched and you couldn't tell one from another. And I kind of imagined that that was something like what Isaiah saw when he looked up one night. And then he wrote these words, Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power, and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now here's what I want you to think about. If Isaiah was stunned at the power of God to create and name and sustain every star in the skies that he could see, which we know today is just a few thousand, that's all you can see with the naked eye. If that stunned him, then how would Isaiah worship today? knowing what we know, knowing that the nearest stars in our sky, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri, are 25 million, million miles away. And if he knew that what he was seeing in his night sky was only just a tiny fraction of one galaxy, our galaxy, which has in it over 100 100 billion stars. And if he knew that beyond the Milky Way galaxy, there were hundreds and hundreds of millions of more galaxies, all with hundreds of millions of stars in each and every one of them, how would he have worshiped? You know, with all of our technology now, and we think we're so smart, don't we? Side note, maybe the last year should teach us we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. Back to the message. But with all of our technology now, with all the scientific discoveries that have been made in recent decades, sometimes, sometimes it seems like God just enjoys keeping astronomers like on the edge of their seats with just these new glimpses of his power. I'll give you an example from a, uh, several decades ago. In the fall of 1989, this was splashed across all kinds of newspapers. It was the discovery of two Harvard astronomers of what they called a Great Wall, capital G, capital W, a Great Wall of Galaxies stretching 
hundreds of millions of light years across the known universe. This wall, they said, was supposedly some 500 million light years long, 200 million light years wide, 15 million light years thick. And in case your high school astronomy's gotten a little fuzzy, a light year is a little less than six trillion miles, one light year. This great wall, they said, consisted of more than 15,000 galaxies, each of them with hundreds of millions of stars. And they described it as, quote, the largest single coherent structure seen so far in nature. And I say they described it that way because only three months later, in February of 1990, God said, here's some more. God opened another little window into tiny man's eyes to look at and marvel again. And now the newspapers were reporting that astronomers had discovered more than a dozen evenly distributed clumps of galaxies. How do you call a galaxy a clump? Clumps of galaxies stretching across vast expanses of the heavens, suggesting a structure to the universe so regular, so ordered, so immense that it defies current theories of cosmic origins. They said this newly found pattern of galactic matter dwarfed the Great Wall. <laughs> and in this new article three months later, the G and the W were lowercase. No more caps for this one. What had been reported three months earlier to be the largest structure ever in the universe. They now say, you know, 30 years ago still, I mean, think about it. We're now over 31 years past that, so I don't even know what's happened since. They now say the Great Wall is, in fact, merely one of the closest of these clumps or regions that contain very high concentrations of galaxies. Anybody kind of going right now? I mean, what do you do with that? But what you do is you confess, what is this universe? But the lavish demonstration of the incredible, incomparable, unimaginable joy and beauty, and wisdom, and power, and greatness of our God. What a great God he must be to create all this. Why does God rejoice in his creation? Because his creation displays who he is, shows us his glory, shows us his power. Let me show you a second thing kind of goes alongside of it. You can write this down as well. God's creation reveals his beautiful wisdom. Verse 24 in Psalm 104 says, how many are your works, Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And if you're memorizing verses each week, which we've been encouraging you to do, this is your memory verse for this week. In wisdom, God made everything. So we see here that God delights in his creation because it expresses his wisdom. And, and the, the universe is, I mean, science tells us this, it's a masterpiece of wisdom and order. You can just take one tiny little part of, of creation, like the human body. What an amazing work of knowledge and wisdom and complexity. I mean, who can fathom the human brain and the mystery of mind and body. Now, we, we don't have the time to cover all of this in detail, but I wanna kind of run through the bulk of this psalm some of the different ways that we see that God's creation reveals his wisdom. In verses five through nine, we see God's wisdom revealed in creation's order. So, we know that the universe is ordered. Even people who, who don't believe there is such a thing as God, you know, who think it all just happened, they, they recognize through the study of the universe that the universe has incredible order. The earth has incredible order. And, and these verses are, are telling us that 
that this order did not come from a whole lot of time and random chance. This, these verses tell us that God did this, that God set the earth on its foundations, that God told the water where it could go and where it could not go. He set a boundary for the waters. Uh, and you read verses like this, and if you stop thinking about it, you might consider, well, what if God didn't keep the universe ordered? You start to realize when you think biblically that we live in constant dependence on the sustaining generosity and power of God. And the Bible tells us that in an instant, if God chose to, he could pull away his hand and everything would not hold together. Jesus holds the universe together. Every molecule, every atom, every particle. You know, if God pulled his hand away, the order we see would disappear. Who knows what would happen? Maybe we would be, maybe we would just experience thousands and thousands of earthquakes, not like one every once in a while, and tornadoes, and hurricanes, and tsunamis. But our God is so gracious in providing us a world that is ordered, so ordered we can measure it with the laws of physics. I just want to ask you, have you thanked God lately for his ordered creation? He keeps the earth in its orbit. He supplies oxygen for your lungs. He keeps your feet on the ground with gravity. He tells the wind and the waves where they can and cannot go. We see God's wisdom in order and he is worthy of our worship. Verses 10 through 18 show us God's wisdom revealed in his provision. Uh, we see in verse 10 that, that it says God, he, he's the one who makes the springs pour water. He supplies water and that water flows and it goes everywhere and it keeps beasts and wild donkeys and birds alive and it makes grass grow so the cattle can eat and, and so that we can eat cattle. Amen. And so that plants can grow for you vegetarians and we can eat vegetarian, you know, vegetarian style, you know, everything. He makes that. We can enjoy wine and oil and bread. And verse 13 says, the land is satisfied. Think about that. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. Verse 16 talks about the trees of the Lord and it says he planted them. God did that. Verses 17 and 18 describe how God provides for storks and wild goats and badgers. I don't know about you, but I, but I actually love watching shows like Planet Earth. And uh, sometimes in that show in particular, you know, the, the narrator expresses ideas that let me know that the writers and producers of this show, they, they don't share the psalmist view. They, they don't see God's glory or wisdom. You know what I do when I hear that? I just give God praise anyway. Just sticking it to the man, you know. I just give God praise anyway. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and, 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 but it's not just nature. Nature is kind of a relatively new term that has sprung up in a culture and civilization where people are increasingly disconnected from belief in God. What we see around ultimately is not just natural. I'm not saying we shouldn't use those words, but more accurately, we should talk about creation because all things we see were created. They didn't just happen. And I'm sometimes watching shows like this, and of course, the you know, the, the later the shows get, the more high def they get and the more beautiful the cinematography gets and they go incredible places that we've never seen before and you see things that blow your mind and I just have to tell you something, sometimes when I'm watching those shows and I'm thinking God made all this by simply the word of his power. Sometimes when I'm watching shows like that, I have church, I do some worship. And I see what God has made. See, I hope you're, you're getting, as we study Psalm 104, this great contrast between what our culture thinks and what God says is true. Our culture thinks the universe just happened. 
that all the things that we see in our world and universe are just a result of impersonal chance and, and time and you know all these impersonal forces. But the psalmist says, no. The word of God says, no. God is actively involved in providing for the work of his creation. In verses 19 to 23, we, we see God's wisdom in creation's rhythms. Uh, God in his wisdom has established sun and moon, the seasons. You, you notice the animals hunt at night seeking their food from God. They go back to sleep and the people come out to do their work. There's this, this rhythm that goes on. This is all part of God's creative design. In verses 24 to 26, we see wisdom in creation's diversity. It says, how many are your works, Lord? You know, the earth is it's just full of God's creatures, creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And I think sometimes we, we take for granted all the incredible diversity and variety in God's creation. I mean, just think about it. God didn't have to do it that way, right? He didn't have to make millions and millions of animals and creatures. He could have just created this planet with a, handful of creatures. I mean, even worse, he could have just created this planet with just us humans and one animal. And he could have made that animal all cats. <laughs> what a horrible universe. <laughs> I was thinking about that and I thought, well, it would have at least been fun to drive in that world. Um, did I say that? Um, send your emails to dmalloy at southwinds.org. <laughs> Debbie will be happy to respond uh, to you. But the point is, of course, God made a world with vast diversity. Everywhere we look, millions and millions of creatures, and they're so wonderful with all their variety, all their differences, all their, their beauty. In verses 27 to 30, we see wisdom in, in creation's life source, which is God himself. Um, and it raises the question for us, well, where do we think life comes from? Where do you think life comes from? Are, are we merely dancing DNA as Richard Dawkins would have us believe? The psalmist tells us that God is the source of life. And this means that we are not masters of our destiny. It means that our lives are totally dependent on our need for air and food and, and water and shelter. And it means that God is our life source. This verse tells us God opens his hand and life is created and God sustains that life with his blessings. And sometimes when it's time, God sovereignly pulls it away, takes the breath, of living creatures, and when that happens, we die, and we return to dust. In other words, God determines when life begins and when it ends. God does all of these things, every one of these things, and every one of them is a display of his wisdom. So how do we respond to this? What should we think? What should we say? What should we do? I mean, what do we, what do, we do in response to this revelation and display of God's wisdom and God's power? Well, the answer in short is we should do what God's creation does. And that's the third thing I want you to see. God's creation gives him praise. In, in Psalm 148, the psalmist calls directly on creation itself to praise the Lord. It says, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. What does this mean? Well, we might say that sun and moon and stars, they praise God by testifying to us, human beings, creature, uh, creatures made in God's image. They testify to us about God, and that is true, but that's not the whole truth. In fact, we see that in that seventh verse where it says, praise the Lord, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Because that verse is talking about a whole lot of things that no human being has any knowledge of. I don't read 
poetry a great deal, but I, I have a few poems that I've come to, to like over the years. And one of my favorites is a poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard by a man named Thomas Gray. It was written in 1751. And I want you to see one of the stanzas of this poem. It says this, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Now, this man writing in 1751 was moved by the thought that down on the bottom of the ocean, unseen, there were these beautiful gems no human eye was ever gonna see. That out somewhere in the barren desert, there were, there were millions of flowers that would bloom and it would blush with vivid colors and would give off this sweet fragrance but would never be touched or seen or smelled by anyone but God. The psalmist, I think, is moved by the same thing in verse seven. Praise the Lord, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. He doesn't know what's down in the depths of the ocean. He doesn't know what's there. And so, and so the depths and the, and the praise they give to God, it has to be more than merely what they express so human beings can see. It seems to me that, that creation praises God simply by being what he made it to be in all of its incredible variety. And think about it, since most of creation is beyond the awareness of mankind up in space, up on high mountains, down at the depths of the sea. That means creation wasn't created merely to serve purposes that have to do with us. It has to mean that God created for his own enjoyment. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, writes about the European water spider that lives at the bottom of of a lake in places in Europe, but it actually breathes air. And he describes how this, this spider uh, will do a somersault on the surface of the water and catch a bubble of air and hold that bubble of air over the breathing holes of its body while it swims to the bottom of the lake where it has built a silk web that forms a balloon and then he'll go into that and he'll deposit that little bit of air, go up, do it again over and over and over again until there is enough air for it to live and eat and mate and exist. You, you've probably heard stories about creatures like this that kind of create astonishment that, that something like this exists. And I, I kind of wonder if, if when we're astonished by something like this, if God smiles and God says to us, you like that? Are you amazed by that? I've been enjoying that little piece of art for thousands and thousands of years before any human being ever existed or knew about it. And I think God may say, if you only knew how many millions of other wonders there are out there beyond your sight, wonders that I, your God, behold with joy and gladness every day. Right here, in Psalm 104, verses 25 and 26, it says, There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed, why? To frolic there. And we don't know exactly what Leviathan is. It's obviously a, a, a very, very large animal. There's a lot of theories out there. Maybe it was a whale or some kind of you know, large shark or something else like this. But why did God create Leviathan, this sea monster? Frolic, just a frolic. Evidently, that's a purpose that God has. And really, when you think about most of the time throughout history of the world, only God would have seen the frolicking. Isn't that interesting? The teeming oceans declare the glory of God and give him praise thousands of miles from any human eye. All creation gives God praise. This leads us to our fourth and final truth, and you can write this down. This is where it all culminates. God's creation points to God himself. Points to God himself. 
God means for us to be stunned and awed by his work of creation, but not for creation's sake. He wants us always to look at his creation and say in our hearts, if the work of his hands is so full of wisdom and power and grandeur and majesty and beauty, what must this creator God be like himself? God wants us to see creation, to look at it and listen to it and smell it, which you can get a lot of opportunity to do at church and touch it and taste it. And he wants us then to do what the angels did when their great king created the universe. You say, what's that? Well, there's a place in the Old Testament book of Job where God pulls back the curtain and shows us this incredible picture. It's in Job 38, verses four through seven. And if you know the context, God is interrogating Job about creation. He's telling Job that he needs to be humble and not challenge God, to trust God, to be God and do what God knows best. And as he's doing all this, God says this, beginning in verse four to Job, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Just try to picture that last line. God is telling us that when he created, he had an audience. The angels were spirits. Evidently, they were created before God created the material universe. And so when God created the universe, when God spoke and stars flared to life and galaxies unfurled, when God breathed and oceans surged and mountains stood up, the angels watched and they sang and they shouted for joy. They'd never seen anything like this. Why? Because it had never existed before. There had never been matter before. They'd never seen matter. They'd never even imagined matter with all of its shapes and colors and textures. And so when they saw all the beauty and the glory of God's work, all the sights and sounds, all the physical things to smell and touch and taste, all created from nothing by the glorious and beautiful mind of God, well, millions and millions of angels shouted for joy over the greatness and the wonder of God's creation. And they did that not primarily and ultimately because of the creation's greatness. They did that because they saw in the great greatness of creation the greatness and the glory of God. Creation points to God himself. We should let creation direct us to the beauty and the glory of God. I mean, think about it. We have to know this. If God made this, what does it mean he is? See, all this glory, all this beauty that God has made, it's just but the backside of his glory, seeing through a glass darkly. What will it be to see God himself? See, not even a billion galaxies will ever satisfy the human soul. Only God, the creator, God, only God is the end of what we are looking for. And so Psalm 104 draws to a close like this, verse 31 and following. It says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice, what? In the Lord in the Lord. You see, in the end, it will not be the seas or the mountains or the canyons or the clouds or the great galaxies that fill our hearts, that fill our hearts to breaking with wonder and fill our mouths 
with eternal praise. It will be God himself. Now, my goal, my purpose in sharing these thoughts with you this morning is this, to encourage you to receive the blessings that God has for you in and through his creation. I believe, as I said earlier, that God wants to minister to you hope and help and healing and happiness through his creation. There is strength here if we understand what the Bible says about what God has made. There is blessing here and many of us neglect it. And so I wanna challenge you to do something very, very practical for the next 30 days. And I'm picking 30 days because they say if you do something for 30 days, it begins to build a habit. And here's the 30-day challenge. Every day for the next 30 days, take time at least once a day to thank and to praise God for his creation. Find at least one thing in creation, something you see, something you smell, something you taste, and give God glory. See God's wisdom, see God's power in his creation. Let your heart find satisfaction in God as his creation points you to who he truly is. Let's close with that verse that's at the heart of Psalm 104, verse 31. I wanna read it again. And in fact, I want you to join me in reading these words out loud. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. This great God who wraps himself in light, who spreads out the heavens and walks on the wings of the wind, this God who sends forth springs into valleys, who makes birds sing, who creates all creatures, who made the moon and the sun, who just looks at the earth and it trembles, who just touches mountains and they smoke. What a God. What a God. Let's worship him. Let's praise him. And let me ask you, do you know him? Maybe you're here today and you're listening to what we've been talking about. It's kind of like you're standing off at a distance. You're observing and, and you're wondering what this is all about. We want you to know today that if you don't know him, you can know him because this great God who created all things sent his son, his only son, Jesus, to live among us, to become one of us. Jesus did that perfectly and he died on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. And if you will trust him, invite him into your life, turn from your sins and turn to him in faith, then you can know this God, this great and glorious, this amazingly wise God. Let's bow our heads as we pray together.